be honest, uh, there's a part of you that would really, really like to be on a snow-capped mountain today, right? <laughs> Let's just be, oh, beach is fine too, you know. I walked outside a little while ago and I'm like, wow, this is refreshing. It's like a dip in the pool. Yeah. No. Hi, everybody. Glad you're here. So glad to see all of you. Um, we are coming up on the school year, and so uh, I know some people are taking vacations, other people are here, the weather is the weather, <laughs> but anyway, I'm so glad that you're all here today. Uh, we are in this series on the book of Acts, and um, I was with a group of pastors on Friday in Oklahoma City um, that are all part of our tribe, and we were sitting around uh, kind of talking about things that um, we've been and just preaching on in our church. And I would say that for whatever reason, with this particular uh, group of, of pastors, we're all, we all ended up in the book of Acts for some reason. And, you know, there's that part of me that's like, well, that's a, that's a coincidence. Nah, it's not a coincidence. And anyway, so it's really interesting, and it was fun to kind of have some conversations about the things that, that they're doing and <clears throat> hearing about it. So last week, uh, we were introduced to this fascinating man named Philip. And Philip was one of the seven deacons in the early church. And uh, uh, let me translate that. The, the, the term deacon um, is Greek for food pantry, right? No, it's not. Um, but in this case, he was assigned to a group of, of um, um, uh, with a group of men to distribute food um, to people who are in need. And so very often... Um, we call them a, a group of deacons, or what they often refer to them in the book of Acts is the seven, right? So you have the twelve, who are the disciples, who became the apostles, and then you have the seven, who are these deacons. And we, we get two extended stories. The first one is, is Stephen, which is this really uncomfortable story about how he uh, was martyred. And then we get this individual named Philip. Um, and what's interesting to me is that we... we inter- we started talking about him last week, and frankly, I was thinking about going on to, to uh, Acts chapter 9, which is really about Saul's per, um, conversion where he becomes Paul. But I thought, no, there's just some really good stuff in, uh, in Philip's life that we need to address. It's just too good. So uh, let's, let's try to do a quick recap here, because we know that um, within the first few chapters of the book of, of Acts, that we've got some animosity that's building between the temple and the followers of Jesus, okay? And um, it comes kind of to a head um, with the the martyrdom of of Stephen itself, and then what we find in the text is that persecution breaks out against the church, that early church. And by persecution, we're not talking about saying mean things about people. We're talking about breaking into their homes and dragging them off to jail. Okay, so we're talking about a very serious type of thing. And then if you remember from last week, um, Philip, uh, there's an etching of him, the evangelist, uh, who we begin to track his story, he ends up in a place called, do you remember where? Samaria. And if, if you've read any part of the New Testament, um, specifically in Luke, you know that Samarians and Jews don't get along so good. They kind of hate each other. 
And there's been a lot of, of conflict there. And so there's this part of me where I'm, I'm reading through this and I'm like, okay, so Philip went out of the frying pan into the fire, so to speak. He goes from one set of persecution and he goes to a, a land that's relatively hostile uh, to Jews in general, and yet he still preaches the good news of Jesus and signs and wonders accompany that, um, uh, that preaching of the message. And it says that there was a large number of believers who, who occurred at that moment, which, you know what, I, I, I gotta be honest, if I saw some signs and wonders too, I think it'd be a whole lot easier to believe, don't you? I mean, it's kind of amazing. And there they are in Samaria. And, and didn't Jesus say something about that? You're gonna be my, what, witnesses? From Jerusalem to Judea to where? Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. So it took persecution to get them out of Jerusalem get them up off the couch and, you know, onto a, a place that would have been uncomfortable for, for most Jews. So, uh, and, and again, the man assigned to the food pantry is doing signs and wonders and preaching the good news. So please, please, please do not ever confuse your assignment with your calling. How many of you heard me say that before? Keep that in mind. Do not confuse those two things. Okay. So the apostles in Jerusalem uh, hear and they investigate and we get the story of two Simons, Simon the sorcerer and Simon Peter. And what's really interesting to me is that Luke, who's the author of this, kind of takes Philip and puts him on the sideline for a second and allows that story to play out. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to pick up the story again in Acts chapter 8. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and, and uh, punch that in. I'll have the, um, the verses up on the screen for you in case you don't. Um, but we're going to rejoin the story, and we're going to pick up again on Philip's part of the story. So remember, he's sidelined just for a brief little bit in the middle of the chapter, and now we're going to pick it up again. So here we go. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. <clears throat> now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, remember, sidelined. Now we've got a shift, okay? Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all of the treasury of the Kandik, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So let's put this in perspective. Okay, he's up in Samaria. And the Lord prompts him to take a trip. Okay, Samaria is, is, is north. And now he's got to go way south. And just from personal experience as somebody who's moved from Wisconsin to Oklahoma, sometimes Jesus does that. He asks you to go to some very strange places, right? <laughs> you caught that, didn't you? Yeah. But it's true. You're up in the north and you go, go into the south. And he comes across this Ethiopian official. And I want to talk about him in, in just a minute. And then, notice again, the Lord prompts him a second time. Right? First he says, I want you to go to this particular road. And timing apparently is an issue here. And then the Spirit said, go to the chariot and stay near it. Okay? So we have two promptings of the Lord here. Now, here's the thing. Those of you who want to hear the voice of God, but want everything mapped out ahead of time. You know who you are. 
I'm one of them. Notice how the angel of the Lord did not say, hey, go to this road and you're going to see a chariot and when you see the chariot, here's what I want you to do. Doesn't, he only gets bits and pieces at a time, right? Kind of, uh, you know, as, you know, need to know basis sort of thing, right? So, first one, go to this road. So, he does that. Hey, by the way, there is that chariot. You go and stay near it. So, keep this in mind. It's, it's happening incrementally. Now, Next, then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. I love this. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked. <laughs> okay, think about that question for a second. How many of you, if you're sitting in Panera reading a book, would appreciate if somebody walked up and said, do you understand what you're reading? What? What would you respond? Yes. <laughs> but look what the, what the Ethiopian says, and I think this is a beautiful thing. How can I unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. But here's, here's the thing I want you to remember. The Lord prompted this, and so the Lord was already doing a work in the Ethiopian. And so the transition is more natural. Does that make sense? And I think we've got to keep those kinds of things in mind. If the Lord is prompting us to do something, he's not just prompting you, he's also at work on the other side. Keep that in mind, right? <clears throat> so then, the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Now this passage comes out of Isaiah 53. This is verse 7 and 8. And if you, if you really want to know, this is the same passage, just a couple of verses earlier, it says, he was wounded for our transgressions. By his stripes we are healed, right? Yeah, it's that verse. So he is reading through what is commonly referred to as a messianic prophecy. We're talking about the Messiah here. And you thought this was coincidence. No, the Lord is doing something. and He's reading through the scripture and he brings Philip along at the right time in order to have this kind of conversation. This is a divine appointment if I've ever seen it. So it's that passage. And then the eunuch asked, asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? So the Holy Spirit just took a little little T, put a ball on it, popped it in the ground, and is getting ready for Philip to knock this one down the fairway. It's amazing. He wants to know, who's he talking about? Who is the prophet speaking about in this passage? Excellent question. Excellent. <clears throat> then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told them the good news about Jesus. I mean, he didn't have any work to do here other than show up because God was already at work. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can prevent my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. 
What a beautiful picture that was. Philip swoops in, does his thing. I want to I suggest to you that reading the word primed this Ethiopian um, for the good news. He's eager to be part of the kingdom of God because I'm, I'm understanding this particular passage and Philip comes along and explains a much bigger picture. I think half the time, um, more than half the time in my own ministry, part of my job has always been to zoom out so that pe- help people see a bigger picture. Bigger picture within the text, a bigger picture within their lives, and this massive picture that God is painting in front of us that you get to be a part of. And this is just one of those instances where all the things kind of come together right at the right time because God's orchestrating it all. It's a cool, cool picture. Here's a quick epilogue, though. Um, And uh, several years ago, I came across this, and I thought this was interesting. So uh, right at the end of chapter 8, Philip, however, appeared at uh, Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Now, again, this is back up north. Okay, so he's moving all over the place. For the record, I don't want to go back up north. I've shoveled enough snow in my lifetime, so I don't necessarily want to, because I know some of you are worried about that. No, I'm kidding. So he goes, he's down in the south, and he goes back to the north until he ends up at uh, Caesarea. But here's, here's the actual epilogue. Ready? Verse, uh, chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. Leaving the next day, we, this is Luke and his companions, reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. One of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Think about this. This is a patriarchal society. And didn't we read in Acts chapter 2 that your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, your sons and daughters will prophesy. And here we are in chapter 21, and it's all coming to pass. Isn't that cool? So now he becomes a way station for others. And uh, they stay overnight with Philip. I just love that last note. I just, I love it. Um, There's just something about it where you begin to see everything starting to come together the way God had orchestrated it. And beautiful picture in the text. Now, this is a significant story, and I think it deserves some historical context. Um, Because remember, none of this was written in a vacuum. And there's some things here that I think we need to understand. So here we have um, the story of an Ethiopian. How many of you know where Ethiopia is? Maybe? Okay. So it's in the east part of Africa, right? Um, And there's a little part that uh, juts out. It's next to Somalia, and uh, I think Kenya's on the south side, if I remember correctly. Um, In fact, yeah, there we go. You can kind of see what it looks like. Um, I found this map, and I thought it was useful. But Ethiopia, believe it or not, um, is associated with a couple of things. First of all, it's at the south end of the Nile River. In fact, um, there's some tributaries uh, that have to the Nile River that um, actually have its headwaters in uh, what we call Ethiopia. But more importantly, it has a long history with Israel, which is fascinating. And so what I want to uh, uh, point out as a reference is in 1 Kings chapter 10, 
there is a woman, she's called the Queen of Sheba, and she visits King Solomon. There's a picture of it. It's amazing to me that how um, kings and queens of ancient Israel sometimes uh, take on the appearance of Renaissance people, don't you think? <laughs> but the Queen of Sheba um, comes and visits Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. Now, some of the uh, scholars will um, you know, believe that Sheba refers to a, uh, a land called Saba, which is what would be in Yemen. And of course, there's a lot of conflict there right now, which is right across a body of water from where? Ethiopia. Yeah. Others um, believe that Sheba was more on the southern Nile, but the truth of the matter is it could be on both sides. The legend was that Solomon and Sheba, well, let's say they did more than just uh, visit. (laughs) And they had a son. Okay? So they did a little bit more, and it was uh, Menelik was his name. And the legend is that King Solomon entrusted the Ark of the Covenant to Menelik. And it was Menelik who brought the Ark to Ethiopia. In fact, um, it's supposedly hidden in the city of Aksum, which if you remember from the last slide, is kind of there on the north. Aksum. And there is a, um, a uh, building there, and inside this building supposedly is the Ark of the Covenant, although um, by local law and local custom, nobody can actually see it, so it's all locked up and it's tucked away, just for the record. So nobody really knows if it's there, but they presume that it is. So this history helps explain why an Ethiopian was in Jerusalem to actually worship. Because there was a connection, historically, with King Solomon and Ethiopia. So you have this official who goes to Jerusalem, who practices some type of religion that pays respect to Yahweh, the God of, of Israel. And so he's up there. Now keep this in mind. And on his way, he receives revelation about Jesus, and he becomes a Christian. Now this is significant, because remember, what is his position? He's kind of like the court treasurer. He oversees the money. That means he has a position of power. Now, empires will rise and fall. One of those empires is called Empire of Aksum, and it was in existence from, a, from approximately 100 uh, CE, or what we'd often call AD, to 900 CE, the Christian era. So remember, Jesus died right around 33-ish, if we do it correctly. So this is not long after Jesus was on the scene, not long after this experience between the Ethiopian and Philip. Now here's the interesting thing. Aksum was ruled by a Christian king, at least in part. Because we know in about 600 AD, 600 CE, that a new religion was forming on the Arabian Peninsula and was being persecuted. And they went to Ethiopia and sought shelter and the Christian king welcomed them. The family that was part of that group of refugees belonged to the household of a man named Mohammed. 
the founder of Islam. And because of the kindness that the Ethiopian Christians gave to his family when they needed it most, Ethiopia was protected by order of Muhammad himself. In fact, to this day, it is one of the few nations that actually survived the, the Muslim um, takeover of most of Eastern and Northern Africa. And there are still Christians there to this day. Now, there are Christians elsewhere too, but this is an ancient, ancient version of Christianity that is still there. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, Ethiopia has had plenty of, of, of problems um, in the years. But at this moment in time, they gave sanctuary to this group of religious refugees, and Mohammed uh, protected them, and they survived, more or less, as a Christian nation. So what we have here is a true ripple effect, right? So he meets the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian takes this message of Jesus back to Ethiopia, and something happens there. We don't have any records of it that we know of, but something occurs there, and so we still have this. Um, Being in seminary that uh, attracts people from all over the world, I had a man from Ethiopia in one of my classes. Some of you have heard me tell this story. He was a Christian pastor in Ethiopia, and we were talking about persecution one day in class, um, speaking of persecution, and he said... um, I didn't speak a whole lot, and he had a very thick accent, so we had to pay very close attention to when, when he said things. But I'll never forget this, because as, uh, as, he was, as we were discussing it in class, he kind of piped up, and he says, yes, the third time I was incarcerated by the communists. You know that little sound of the needle going across the record? Rip! That happened in class. We all kind of went, I'm sorry, What? And he began to describe what the Christians in Ethiopia um, suffered at the hands of the communists. I tell you that I cried a lot. And afterwards, I remember um, walking up to him and uh, (laughs) just telling him how sorry I was. And this beautiful inner type of strength that I, at the time, I had no idea where that came from. He just says, it's okay, I'm here. <laughs> like, I'm so glad, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. So empires will rise and fall, but Christianity continues on. And for whatever reason, Christianity, for some reason, tends to get a whole lot stronger under persecution. I think that's an important thing for us to remember. And so now when I, when I read the story of the Ethiopian and the Christianity that came to that country, probably through him, I realize, I realize now that I had talked to a direct descendant. Isn't that cool? Man, 2,000 years later, it's really cool. Now, we must understand a couple of things, and I want to offer a comment or two about this, because we have to understand this about the passage. First and foremost, Philip listened and followed the Holy Spirit. Remember, this all starts when he gets prompted, I want you to go to this road down south. Go on. So he leaves the north to Samaria, he heads down south. He listened and he followed. Go to the road. Then go to the chariot and stay close. 
Of course, he had no idea who this person was in the chariot. Luke gives us that after the fact. But he has no idea, and he has no idea what impact he would have on an entire nation. All he's doing is he's just listening, and he's following through. He listened and he followed the Holy Spirit. We have to keep that in mind. And so here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. Can we do the same? Can can we do the same thing? Can we listen to the Holy Spirit and can we follow? Can we follow what he says? Now, some people believe that God only speaks through the Bible. You open up the Word and then you read things and God will, you know, uh, cause something to stir within your heart. That's true. That does happen. But that doesn't seem to be the case that we read in the scriptures, that they actually listen to the Holy Spirit and they follow through. Now, of course, the argument, of course, is, well, that's because they didn't have the full Bible. Really? They have the Old Testament. So wouldn't it, wouldn't it make sense that they would read the Old Testament and they would, just, they would just use that? But no, there's a very clear sense that the Holy Spirit speaks directly to people and, and, and they listened and they followed and, and big things happened. And so what we have to keep in mind is that the direct communication that we receive from God doesn't contradict the Bible, but let's be honest, the Bible doesn't tell us how to deal with political commentary on Facebook. <laughs> and sometimes I need God to say, yeah, don't do that, <laughs> right? Don't, don't engage in this one, or whatever it happens to be, you know? And, and the fact of the matter is, is that God does speak to us directly, prompts us. Sometimes it's clearer than others, but I believe we can listen and follow. I think we can listen and we can hear the voice of God prompting us, speaking to us, stirring things in our hearts. But I want to offer two cautions and I think this is really, really important. Listen and follow the Holy Spirit. Here's the first caution. is It takes time to learn his voice. It takes time to learn the voice of God. So uh, a lot of you know that I, I go through this process of journaling and there are things very often where I, I feel like God is saying something. Um, and there are other times where I'm like, God, is that you? Or is that just me, wishful thinking? And what I try to do is I try to write it down and I let God confirm it or deny it. But I'm going to write it down because this is what I'm hearing. And I want to know that, and I very, very often will write a little note in my journal. I'm like, God, I don't know if this is you or if I'm making this one up. Sometimes it's very clear, sometimes it's not, but I'm going to allow him to confirm and deny those things because it takes time to learn his voice. And the people that I've run across who have spent the time to learn the voice of God hear it very clearly and they, uh, very confidently that this is what God is saying. But you're not going to get that right away. So if this is new for you, don't panic. There's a learning curve. And for some of us, it's a steep learning curve. Like I need carabiners and ropes to get up that curve. But that's what we're attempting to do here. I want to hear the voice of God. I want to be in a position like Philip to make the type of impact that Philip made. I want to be in the position. If God chooses to use me that way, I want to be, I want to be available. If he doesn't, that's fine too. He's going to choose someone else. That's all right. So keep that in mind. It takes time to learn what his voice sounds like. Here's the other one. There is a cost to learn his voice. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes attention. And very often, the cost is your agenda. 
That one hurts a little bit. To set my own agenda off to the side and say, okay, God, if you're speaking to me, what is it that you want? Let me just tell you right now, I like my agenda. My agenda's cool. It's fun. Jesus, not so much sometimes. At least in the intermediate. Is it better for me? Most likely. But I like my agenda. And so sometimes the hardest thing to do is to go, all right, God, what do you have in mind? There's a cost to it. There's a cost to sitting down in the morning and spending time in the presence of God. There's a cost to it. You know, are we willing to pay the price? The same group of pastors that um, I was with on Friday, we were talking about this. You know, we come across people all the time who they like the idea of following Jesus, but they're not willing to pay the price in order to go deeper. And um, that's, not, that's not a judgment call. That's just the reality. And because of their circumstances or their upbringing or whatever it is, they're just not in a place where they're willing to pay the price. And so for, for me and for our staff and for some others, we're sitting with God at the bottom of the triangle. Remember, we had talked about this before. This is the discipleship triangle. Is that your calling is between you and God. You receive anointing in order to do the assignment that he's called you to. And sitting at the bottom of the triangle there is where we're in the presence of God and that's where he speaks. That's where he tells us things that we, we need to know. And I can't speak for everybody, but I can tell you for me, it's often, David, you're adopted as my son. I love you. I have you here for a reason. This may or may not be comfortable, but it's okay. I've got you on this. And I want you to know that I'm with you. And I need that source of encouragement. How many of you would like some encouragement like that too, right? I mean, we need that. And it's not trying to feed my ego, but it's trying to remind me who I am and what that calling is about so that I have strength and empowerment to actually do. Because I'll tell you right now, pastoring a church is too much for me. I can't do it on my own. And the um, progress that we've made is largely because God has been present and God has brought other people to be part of this. He's brought all of you. And I don't believe that God puts people together um, coincidentally. There's a reason why we're all together. A reason why we choose to worship together and to experience God this way. He reminds me of that. Because I sit at the bottom of the triangle and I need to hear those things. And then occasionally we meet with others to try to talk about what we're hearing. Every Monday, our staff will get together and we'll, we'll go through this. What's God showing you in your journal? And everybody can share if they want to or they don't have to. And I will tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, God's on the move here. I can say with a great deal of confidence that God is working in the lives of the people who are on staff at Thrive Church. And I'm so grateful for it. I love the fact that I don't have to convince them of things, that God is already doing some work in their lives, and it's a beautiful thing to watch. And so really, um, it comes back down to this challenge, is who's willing to pay the price? Uh, This is not a, you know, wag my finger at you. 
you've got to decide if, if it's a price that you're willing to pay. And, and really, what happens, it, it's not just about that price, but it's also who's willing to create a ripple effect. Go to a road, stay close to the chariot, and the rest just happens from there. And we see something happen on a national level. And 2,000 years later, I meet a guy in a classroom who believes in Jesus and suffers things that I can't even imagine. It strengthens my faith. That's a big ripple. <laughs> Let's be honest. So who's willing to do that? It's up to you to decide. We're going to sing here another song like we, we, we do every week, try to give people a chance to respond in their heart to what God's doing. I don't know what God's stirring inside of you. Maybe something, maybe nothing, but I hope something. It's hard to read this story like this and realize that, you know, it's not just about Philip. It's also about you and me at some level. And like, like always, uh, James and I will be in the back. We're willing to pray with anybody if, if you need it. No pressure. But maybe it's one of those things where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing this stuff about the Spirit, and I don't know. I don't know how I feel about all this. Hey, that's cool. We understand. But maybe it's just interesting enough where you're like, yeah, maybe I need to learn a little bit more about that. Hey, let's pray about that. We'd love to do that with you, not for you, with you. We want, we want to pray for you. We want to pray with you. So keep that in mind today. Here's the thing, and I've been saying this for a while now, but the things I read in my Bible, I don't often see in my church. And the older I get, the more I realize that is unacceptable to me. I want what happened in the Bible to happen today. I can't force it. And it's not something that I'm going to do. It's something that the Spirit is going to have to do. And so the only thing I know to do is to get into his presence and allow him to guide and direct those things. So if you find it unacceptable that the church, which is you, if the church doesn't reflect what's in the Scripture, then let's pray about that one. And, and together, let's see what God has in mind for all of us. 